Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we're here with an awesome guest today. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Hamur Baika. I was born and pretty much raised in Iran. And now I live in the greater Washington, D.C. area. I'm an author. My book, On the Enemy Side, came out just a few months ago. Thank you. I was very temporarily in the Washington, D.C. area, but I didn't do anything interesting besides quarantine there. So, (laughs) Oh, gosh. When was that? From like March to like September. So So very recently. Yeah. I think everyone who's listened to this podcast has kind of heard the story, but it was was a little bit random. But... I didn't do anything interesting there besides being quarantined, but we overlapped for a second. Tell us more about your book that's coming out. Uh, it's a historical fiction based on a love story between a prisoner and a prison guard. The story is actually based, the inspiration came from a real story of a socialist guy who was studying medicine in Italy. And after the revolution, he came back to Iran to serve his country and he joined the Revolutionary Guard in 1980, which is the same uh, time period as the the story is taking place, his story is pretty sad. Like he joined the he joined the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, and because he was a socialist, they thought that he was an infiltrator and that he was spying on them. So he was arrested, and unfortunately, he died under tor- under torture. And I found this story so heartbreaking that I wanted to kind of imagine an alternative. That's why I wrote the story. This particular socialist organization at the time did not oppose the government. So his death was basically ideologically based. And I, th- I, I thought that was really heartbreaking. So that was what uh, inspired the whole story that just came out in the book. I really like that the book tracks chronologically and tracks along the dates and events of the Iranian Revolution. I'm I'm somewhat of a history nerd, although Iran is admittedly my weak point. And it was just really interesting to read even a fictionalized account of how people reacted on the ground as things happened. A lot of it is just like day-to-day things where Hissam's like worried about getting promoted, juggling the idea of doing justice now versus getting power and promotions, getting justice later. And just the day-to-day lives, just the quiet interactions between lovers and how it's, I love how this romance almost de-romanticizes revolution. I mean, I wanted to to try to tell a story that was as close to reality as I possibly could. I tried my best to research everything. I read newspapers from the Times. I read like prison memoirs from political prisoners uh, to see what their experience was. I even like, I, I tried to understand like what the currency value was because the um, Iranian currency has fell so much so fast that it's hard to, it's hard to tell how how much the currency was worth so I did a lot of try to understand like how much money would have been worth in 1980 so that when they're talking about how much money family member is bringing to prison how much money would be reasonable for someone who's not well off so that's I, I tried my best to to do them justice to uh and at the, t- at the time, there were a lot of different groups. Some of them were radical. That's the group that Bahram is associated with. Some of the groups were kind of centrist, socialist, but pro-government, like the, the party that Hassam is associated with. And there are r- radical groups on the, on the right side as well. There are Islamist groups who were, you know, carrying out assassinations and things like that. 
So there is a lot of different strata of various groups and various ideologies of people who were at the same time living together and trying to make sense of the reality. And because Hassam is a newcomer to this part of the country, and I'm not sure if this comes through uh, sufficiently, but he's also from a different social class. He's from the upper middle class. He's going to school in like Italy and he's coming coming to the South, like not only the language and the culture and the clothes are very different from what he's used to. He is also, he's also new to interacting with this new social class, like kind of a slightly, you know, lower income colleagues and friends in the South that he had not been previously exposed to. So a lot of, one of my readers was like, he is so out of place. It seems like he's in a foreign country, but like some of that is realistic. My family is Baha'i. So when we constantly move to try to stay alive, and I think like I was myself a lot of the time stranger, a lot of time feeling like an outsider, and I didn't know how to to like socialize with local norms and tradition in each locality. I think it's that made it kind of realistic for Hassan and his unfamiliarity with what's going on. In I also felt it was a really good vehicle for exploring those differences in norms because, like, if it was a native character, they wouldn't comment on the long sleeve versus short sleeve. Or I thought that was just clever writing. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, yeah, I, I thought of that too. I'm like, he has to be an outsider in order to. To be, um, to be able to communicate the type of messaging that the reader would not otherwise notice. Or even yeah, comment on. Right. Yeah. I think also it's just like, there's something very just psychologically realistic about a lot of these characters are just like so young and they still have this beyond like their political convictions and they're kind of grappling with their own personal political convictions and their desire to fit into this coalition. There's just like, I want to belong. I want to think the thing that's going to make me belong with these guys that, yeah, that comes across on such like basic, but realistic level. And I think that's really clear with Hassan's character. And a lot of the times, one of the, one of the reasons that I wanted the characters to be exactly as they are is their age group. And I, I wanted to keep their age the way it is because a lot of like political prisoners at the time, they were quite young. They were like mm -hmm. high school students and like university students, like the same age as Hassam and Bahram. I, I wanted to stay true to that. So that's one of the things that was very important to me to, to convey. Teenage is already difficult in, yeah. in normal situation, in a typical set of circumstances, but uh, going through a revolution a whole bunch of different ideologies and political groups that you are exposed to and being an outsider for both of them i just try to pack a lot of layers to be able to to be able to con like portray iran in sufficiently complex mm -hmm. pattern so what was the research and writing process like for you once you found that idea that you wanted to go with i started writing i think 2008 and I didn't even know that this was going to become like a full length novel. I was just like jotting out stories that came to my head. And a lot of those stories are flashbacks in the, in the novel. But after a few, writings, a few years of writing, I'm like, let me just see how, how much I've written. And I realized I had written like 30,000 words. I'm like, hey, if I just double this, <laughs> um, it's very, it's close to a full length novel. So that was how I started writing it, basically as flashbacks. Something that I really wanted to point out in the themes is like Iranian racism. And 
that came through for me through the characters of Talib and Najib and Walid. I wanted to make sure that that part of the story is told because it's it's difficult to talk about, but I also wanted to make sure that it is central to the story because I think we need to deal with that and start uh, addressing it. The research of it, there is a lot of prison memoirs. Most of them deal with after a little bit later in 1981, 1982, mm. and afterwards. There are not that many that came to 1980. But at the same time, the crackdown on prisoners after 1981 was so harsh and so horrendous that I couldn't I couldn't write about it. And even if I did, I doubt anybody would like to read about it. It's just viscerally painful to have to be exposed to. So I, I, I wanted this to be the year before, before mm-hmm. things got really, really bad. That's why I chose this period. I also actually found some of the bookkeeping details of the Iranian revolution, like how they were just picking people up just off the streets, not documenting ever, anything, getting them to prison, and then having to go back and interview the prisoners and ask them why they were being detained. And that was just like some horrifying office politics meets uh, police meets new government stuff right there. I was just like, wow, that is so completely predictable, but also kind of like, Wow. Yeah, things were things were really chaotic at the time. In 1979-1980, there was like so many so many overlapping security forces. We had the police, um we had the revolutionary guards, we had the revolutionary committees that are not part of anything really, but they have so much power. It became a vehicle for arrests and things and sometimes just like personal retaliation you didn't like somebody in your neighborhood so you went to the revolutionary committee and said hey such and such did such and such and such and there was no real like due process to go back and try to investigate anything it's it was pretty chaotic well um, even with the investigation you had between uh, Hissam and I think it's Nasser, they were discussing how he couldn't find any real evidence against this the Baha'i character. And the boss kept pushing and kept pushing. And he's like, I don't have anything. I che- I did did my homework on this, you know, and we have to let him go. Yeah, Just, and I thought I was giving them, I was giving Nasser the benefit of the doubt because I don't yeah. think they really cared that much about evidence at the time. Well, yeah, but it's also, it's he wanted to say, just find anything, I don't care, versus he just needed an excuse to keep the prisoner there, not an actual investigation. And I think uh, Hisam wasn't reading that yet in, the, in that point in the story. So, but that was my reading of it, or listening. Yeah. Disclosure, we listened to the audiobook here. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, I um, I myself, I, I myself constantly say I'm reading, writing. Um, I'm, I'm listening. I'm reading. <laughs> I saw. I mean, those like audiobooks are a type of book because they say it in the t- in the in the name. I mean, if we really want to get into what is a book, I mean, do we still count scrolls as books? Do we count tapestries uh, as do. books? Yeah. <laughs> do we count okay. ebooks as really books, or are they just like one long text <laughs> document? It's. <laughs> Um, I only read ebooks and tapestries. <laughs> <laughs> I mostly listen to audiobooks. I'm usually doing like, I don't know, washing the dishes and reading because otherwise I would have to sit. I'm like, I already sit enough for my day job. I don't want to 
sit and read any more than that. So I'm, I'm, I do most of my reading through audiobooks. And there's just so much chores to be done. <laughs> like, I don't want people to be able to, like, message me while I'm reading because then I'm not going to, you know, like, it's going to take me out of it so fast. I totally get that. That's why I have, like, a separate Kindle just for books, no other apps installed on it or anything like that. Phone is muted in the next room, so I don't even look at it. I'm just going to lay down on the couch and read all day. After a hard day of sitting at work. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Back to the book. Um, One of the things I also like was just like how low-key the relationships were between like uh, Hisa and Bahram. They were just sitting around talking. Hassam is the prison guard and Bahram is the prisoner. Yeah, but uh, this was earlier in the book where they were having us, they were just had sex in the room and they were just, you know, being super cute together and it was adorable. And, you know, but they also <laughs> had this side conversation about whether just being a top makes you more masculine versus someone who is a quote receptive partner, you know? Mm-hmm. I like that because it was casual, but it didn't like sort of devolve into anything at that point anything weird so i I was just it just felt casual yeah i tried to um not get too deep into like one topic at a time because a lot of times that's not how we live Mm -hmm. um try to try to keep it realistic um and like in the numerous rounds of editing i try to you know take out if i'm like oh i'm explaining things too much like it's does it, it doesn't feel natural for him to like start saying like the history of the revolution here so let's just take it out um, so no info dumps allowed <laughs> yeah no it's not it doesn't get pedantic it, it stays um like layered but the layers aren't overbearing right because like that conversation it could have got into like a long explanation about masculinity and blah 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 but like no it's not that it, it normally doesn't <laughs> right yeah um and there's um there's something that keeps it real by just staying there what was it like recording your own audiobook i wanted someone who above everything else i wanted uh someone who can pronounce everything correctly So I did some research. I listened to a lot. I mean, I I listen to audiobooks pretty regularly and I get so mad when they mispronounce names or places. So unfortunately, I came to the conclusion that I have to do it myself and I don't have any experience uh, narrating books. So I, uh, I started one round beginning to end. I read the text and I sent it to a friend of mine, to a couple of friends and they were nice, but honest. So <laughs> I had to re-record everything from beginning to end. I tried to give character uh, characters uh, different voices so you can hear the difference of who is saying what. And some of that I failed at, therefore, came the third round of recording and then I started editing um, taking out a lot of like mouth noises and breaths and clicks and just like random noises 
and I'm 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 recording in the basement, so sometimes you still hear like the lawnmower of the neighbors, some noisy motorcyclists who feels like they have to really show off that they can make as much noise with the motorcycle as possible. Um, it was a lot of work. I I doubt I will do that ever again because it was. Um, it was it was a lot of work and I didn't particularly enjoy it. So hopefully for the next one I can um, I can find someone with a studio space or at least a very quiet and isolated room. Yeah, um, I, I feel your pain on that recording, and I especially hate editing anything with my voice in it because I'm like, oh god, I have to listen to myself, and I start overthinking it. And yeah, absolutely. my god, I have no intonation at all. <laughs> I I felt like my first round of recording was so awful. I'm like, oh my god, I can never do this. And as I was trying to make different voices for characters, I'm like, there are some like 20 different characters. I definitely cannot make up 20 different voices. Like I'm not a voice actor. And then even then, like I thought I'm absolutely like over exaggerating their accents and their voices. When I I sent the files to the sound engineer and they came back, I'm like, you can't even tell that they are different <laughs> that these are different voices. I tortured myself so much to try to make them different. I thought I'm overdoing it, and now after the engineering, it doesn't even sound much that <laughs> it doesn't even sound much like um, of a try. But you know, I, it's I almost, did my best. <laughs> it's almost like you have to do like stage play acting, where you have to really like throw yourself Amp into it. Up, yeah. Put it to 11 and leave your shame at the door, because otherwise you're going to sound like yourself, but just slightly different paced. Exactly. Like, I remember the scene where Walid's mother finds out that he, that she has lost him, and she is, like, crying and going crazy. And that was, that was a scene that was, it was so, so difficult for me to, to record because I did like Esmat's part separately and I did um, her part separately. And then I would start crying and then I'm like, okay, I have more recording to do. I can't just cry. Like I could feel her pain just vibrating in my chest. So one of, uh, one of my listeners is like, oh, I really like that scene. You did such a good job. I'm like, I cried every time <laughs> I did it. <laughs> well, if you ever want to sound like, especially Hoity Twenty, you can say, yeah, that's just my method acting. <laughs> yeah, I should have said that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, advice from this. Just if you had to cry after writing or reading something, just call a method. Sound fancy and trained. I will I will definitely do that next time. <laughs> and if there's any voice actors watching this watching this podcast, because that's what you do with podcasts, particularly <laughs> Iranian voice actors, hit them up about the next book. <laughs> but that does bring up the question, what's next for you? I just finished my first draft, which is you know, not not at all good. It has to go through like several rounds of editing. But I just finished my first draft on my next work. It's not about an Iranian main character. So I definitely need numerous like sensitivity readers and a good editor and all of the good stuff. I'm nervous about it because I'm dealing with um, some of the same themes, but in a very different setting. It has to do with racism in the U.S. and domestic violence in a same-sex couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't, 
it's it's not like an own voices type of novel so i need a lot of like external expertise to to check for things that i may not know so i'm i'm nervous i'm nervous and i hope by the time it comes out it's good and polished and so what the best is, it can be could you share with us like the uh inner book jacket the summary of this new one i haven't written it yet so i apologize for okay uh, too early to ask my apologies <laughs> It's basically uh, the story of a gay guy from Afghanistan who is in a relationship that is violent um, and dealing with his demons, trying to get what he wants out of the relationship. And he doesn't know that he deserves better. And at the same time, witnesses and experiences racism in um in his surrounding and the setting is um baltimore in 2015 but yeah like what's kind of what's that process been like for you what was kind of the impetus for you to kind of want to start um writing about uh experiences a bit further from your own and um who are you looking to in terms of collaborating or advising on this project and what are you doing different this time uh let me so what I'm doing differently is that I'm um a lot more organized. Uh I don't I, I plan everything in advance and I have a I have a nice spreadsheet of uh everything and I have uh you know the dates and um everything in, in one central place so that I can check things uh and um just plan things better so that the writing process itself doesn't take me such a long time. There are two two overlapping themes that I really wanted to talk about. One is racism in the U.S. and how it feels being an immigrant and witness this um, micro and I mean microaggressions. I don't think are that they are not even that micro. They're pretty. They're it's such it's it's a big deal. Like, yeah. yeah, and feeling witnessing somebody else going through that. And, you know, for a lot of people, like the U.S. is such an, I don't think it is that anymore. But when I started writing, the U.S. seemed like an ideal place that every, uh, everybody thought like uh, they had a notion of what the, what the American dream is. And um, there is, this is land of opportunity and how everybody at least has the potential and the chance to improve their lives. And after coming here, I had like a a little bit of a disillusionment with the um to see how how things are unequal and how some groups are favored and other groups are discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tell that story, you know, through the eyes of an immigrant because I wanted to discuss these topics, but through like a third like a third party i mean if you sort of like an ideal way to do it though with an outsider perspective because you can break people away from the normalization of of what is right and what isn't because when you're in the environment like for example when i was growing up in america people would ask me where i was from and i would tell them oh new york because that's where i was raised and then i'd be like no where are you really from Mm-hmm. And I didn't think there was anything weird about that until somebody was like pointed out how weird that was, you know. 
it's just disabusing yourself sort of the idealism of america is one thing that a lot of people have to do growing up or when they come to america is you're told land of opportunity but that's the news that's the outside propaganda that's also very internal here as well but it's it's hard to break out of that especially if you don't have a reason to yeah and like the idea of never belonging um like if your name sounds strange to whoever then they feel like they are entitled to ask you about your background and your heritage and your ancestry and just like attack you with this barrage of questions and questioning and i think I'm sorry, who gave you the right to ask me all of these questions? Who are you? Where are you from? Where are your parents from? What is your ancestry? And the problem is if you do that, you sound like the asshole to this person. <laughs> but if you put up with it for like 40 or 50 minutes or whatever long to satisfy their curiosity, maybe get lucky and get a pat on the head and told, oh, you're one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. and, exactly. And you'll be like, you're just sort of left awkward. What do you do with that? Like... Do you, do you even continue to have, like, what if you can't get away from that person that you've just justified your experience to and are now thoroughly weirded out by? Mm -hmm. Like, know? I remember I, uh, when I went to grad school in, in London, I could feel like every single person who met me before they asked my, my name, the first question, they, every single one of them, except for my boyfriend, but every single person I met in London asked me, when are you leaving? I'm like, am I poisoning your air? Like, does that really have to be the first question that you ask me yeah. of how long I'm going to be like subjecting you to my presence and when the hell, when I'm going to just get the hell out of here? Um, yeah. And I had, um, even here, um, uh, we had a dinner party for a friend of mine and she, she got married and she came here with her husband. And over dinner, I thought I was being interrogated, like, to satisfy his curiosity. And I'm like, I have a whole bunch of questions for you, but I'm not just posing them one after another after another because I, it's just rude. Plus, you know, it's, um, it's not my right to ask you all of these things. So what makes you think you should be asking me all of these I don't know, never ending questions. Just by accident, I fell out of touch with this particular friend. <laughs> <laughs> by accident. Um, accident. <laughs> on on the other hand, but I also sorry, have to say, sorry. on the other hand, it's, it doesn't matter what they're saying about me so long as they're talking about me. <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm kind of shy and, you know, unless, unless I, I have a drink in me, then um, I would just like to be quiet and kind of hide in the corner and listen to everybody else talk. <laughs> that seems like a normal writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen during, to people talk, take notes. During the quarantine, later. social distancing, like it has, like I still feel fine. Like um, I'm okay, but some of my friends who are extroverts, they are like really suffering being away from everybody else. Whereas for me, I'm like. Yeah, I miss my friends, but it's all right, more or less. Like, my, my, I don't feel particularly, like, getting emotionally distressed because of social distancing. I mean, emotionally distressed because of a whole lot of other types of issues, but not, not social distancing. So I feel like uh, it paid off being quiet and just um, 
minding my own business and staying away from people like it came handy during um during 2020 <laughs> yeah I mean I'll have to say like I definitely consider myself an introvert but like I did like seeing a few people like this is this isn't quite what I meant but definitely doing better than some people as an introvert who likes to cook I miss having other people eat my food but oh my I'm a, but I'm not but I'm not heartbroken <laughs> that I don't have to be around a lot of people all the time now do you have favorite things that you cook? Oh man, that's like, that's a dangerous question. I like doing a za'atar sumac baked chicken, just basically cover the bottom of the pan with onions and olive oil and garlic, uh, coat the chicken, it's chicken breast itself in sumac and za'atar, cover that on top of onions, pop in the, maybe cover that with bread if you want to, or add the bread later, and put it in the oven about 450 for about 20 to 30 minutes depending on size and it's delicious i will totally steal that (laughs) or actually no i will i will tell my husband about it and he will steal (laughs) that's something my grandma and my mom both my grandma used to cook and my mom still cooks and i cook so we basically we basically just argue with each other whose is better that's amazing. I'm so jealous. Spoiler, it's me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you might be a tiny bit biased, but no. <laughs> so my quarantine cooking habit is like just like dumping suma into things like it doesn't even belong in. Like I'm, <laughs> like I'm just like making like pasta. I'm like, yeah, why not? Just just a little yeah, olive so, oil and, and sumac. Because it doesn't it doesn't really taste bad in anything. That's the thing you realize. Like it doesn't make anything taste worse. It usually just makes it taste better. We just bought a bunch of sumac to give to family members too. <laughs> like try this. <laughs> it just works. It works with everything. I'm just saying pepperoni pizza with sumac on top. Mm, good. See, I've never tried it, but I believe you because yeah, it works with anything. Yeah, I should try that. I've never thought of that before. <laughs> but I also love this stuff, so I'm just going to eat it raw if I can. Just like... <laughs> like just uh, a handful of Samog? Sure, why not? <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but... <laughs> oh my god. That would be so fun. I want to see a, a video of your face when you do that. <laughs> the Sumog challenge? <laughs> Oh, it's like the, what was that last? Cinnamon one. Yeah. Or the ice bucket one. Be like, yeah, mouthful. sounds a lot more pleasant though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, something that um, I, I think Iranians need to start thinking about and address is um, misplacement of their anger. Because I think, um, like a lot of like all of the cities that I live in and all of my classmates that I know all the friends in different places they were mostly very secular and it could be a matter of class as well but a lot of Iranians are particularly like secular which is very different from what you see on your tv screens when um, you know the news has a 30-second coverage of uh, Iran. And I feel like religion has been forced on 
Iranians for so long uh, since the revolution that they are misplacing their anger um, and putting it on Islam and therefore on Arabs because they think that the Arab conquest brought Islam to, to Persia mm -hmm. and they think if they are angry, they just have to, um, they just have, like, I, I just feel it's, it's really unfortunate because there are millions of Arab Iranians and they are not the ones who invaded the country. I don't know how many centuries ago. So the, why, why, why should they be the one to be the recipient of so much aggression and uh, just ugly racism? Like I was, I was listening to like various supposedly experts. Um, like one of them was saying, and this is like a former diplomat from the monarchy who lives in Britain. And he has so much to say that there is no racism in Iran. I'm like, who gave you the right to talk about this topic? Like I lived in Ahwaz for three years and this is a city with a significant Arab population. And except for one of our teachers who was Arab and like we couldn't understand a lot of the times what he was saying because he's Persian, you know, had a, had a strange accent. I never interacted with anybody that I knew was Arab. Like we were so separated and like that was normal. Like I didn't know better at the time. There is a lot of like policies that the that the government is implementing like um, forced resettlement of Arabs from Khuzestan to other province and bringing people from other provinces to, um, to Khuzestan for various like agric agricultural projects and taking land away from like Arab population who are native to the land. And these are, these are things that uh, like rarely make it to the news, but on top of all the um, policies that are that are implemented by the government. There is also a lot of like racism and discrimination by regular Iranians against Iranian Arabs. And I think that's really unfortunate. And we, I think like we definitely need to talk about it and start addressing it um, and place, place your anger in the right, right place. Like don't, don't, don't victimize and attack people for their ancestry and for their mm -hmm. heritage, but it has nothing to do with what you're really angry about. Um, and, and that's, that's something that to, to other Iranians and Iranian Americans, hopefully, hopefully Iranian Americans who lived in the U S for a while are better, but I, I, um, I hear a lot of like quite racist things and it's, it's really, it's really upsetting. I wanted to address through the book and like, Hey, don't be a, I don't know don't if I can swear. <laughs> no, you can swear all you want. We are very swear friendly here. We have we have no advertisers and no publishers to appease. I, I feel like that's, I mean, obviously so important, but also so many people outside the country don't even know that there are Iranian Arabs. And of course, part of that is ethno-national myths work and... <laughs> They erase people from kind of public consciousness. Um, like me reading the book and having some sense that there are um, Arabs and other ethnic minorities in Iran. I, I also just learned so much about that situation that I, I, I don't know, like it's, it's really not talked about 
in the general media or even in like, I think in either Arab or Iranian diasporas um, that much. Cause I think especially in the U S like Iranian and Persian have really gotten like equated um, mm-hmm. and how people talk about uh, like ethnicity. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not right. Yeah. I'm like, I, um, I did an ancestry hoping to, hoping to find my ancestry, but it didn't work. One of my aunts telling another aunt that my great grandfather is an Arab and the other aunt was denying this. Now, I don't know if she was denying it because it's not true or she was denying it because she would be ashamed if she had Arab ancestry. So I'm like, I have no idea what I am ethnically. Like um, I could be a little Kurdish, a little Turkmen, but ancestry, definitely. I'm sorry, ancestry.com. I know um, I'm <laughs> this is not um, a great advertisement for you. I, they they told me that I'm eighty percent from Persia. I'm like, I know that. I yeah. told you this. <laughs> the only reason I haven't tried that is because my mom is so skeptical about like data sharing that I'm like, oh, one, you might be right. Two, if I share my DNA, I'm still sharing your DNA, and I feel kind of bad about it. Um, yeah, we all have like ethnicities that. We might be, but someone tells us don't check. Being in denial about um, not being as quote unquote pure. Uh, now I wish Alia was here because she has a great um, DNA test story about about all this, about um, how possibly one of her um, ancestors slept with uh, one of the maids because there was I think I think it was like somebody of Indian heritage. Just, there was like some oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's yeah. Um, half Saudi, and her uh, some of her DNA test is South Asian. So yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which um, is common, right? Like, it's I don't think that's like uncommon in the Gulf, but obviously, people mm-hmm. don't want to admit that there. Um, actually, I've actually had sort of a similar conversation with my mom, and how we were talking about where our family is really from. It's like. Five generations ago on my mom's side, they were from like this little town in Turkey. But then the family, at least the branch of the family I'm from, moved from Turkey to Armenia, back to Turkey. Oh, um, your mom's name is so Armenian. It's like obnoxiously Armenian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How could you not think you're Armenian? No, but but then it's like, <laughs> then my grandfather moved during the, uh, I think it was like 60, like, I want to say I'm... It's hard to keep track of dates because I don't have the timeline in front of me. Like, I think it was in, like, after World War One, they moved to Egypt. And then they were driven out. And then they went to Lebanon, then back to Egypt and Lebanon. All because of either political um, instability or just lack of, lack of economic opportunity. And this is my family on my mom's side for five generations like basically 200 years of history and who knows what happened before that because that's all the living memory we have yeah that is amazing so i definitely knew i was like part armenian but i was like what does that even mean yeah so yeah i was surprised i i thought that um there might be some russian from my mom's side or some afghan heritage but ancestry didn't think so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, the other problem with the ancestry dot com and like twenty three andme is they don't have a large amount of data from the Middle East and Asia. So some a lot of times, like when you get those test packs, it'll be like something unknown. 
just because mm-hmm. they don't have a lot yeah. of that. Yeah, I was supposed to be, they changed my results. Uh, once I had one set of results and like a few months later, they um, came up with better, more exact results. So I lost my Indian her- heritage in the in the process. I'm like, I like to be 18% Indian. <laughs> what do you mean I don't have it anymore? <laughs> but um, I have a friend who has a PhD in, um, uh, God, what is that? Um, she has a PhD in anthropology and she's like, just just tell me um, a little bit and I will tell you your history. You don't need to go to all these, like, you don't need DNA for that. I can tell you. <laughs> But going back to our earlier conversation, I just thought it was really refreshing to hear about Iranian supremacy when we're usually talking about Arab supremacy here being yeah. a problem. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it's it's really bad. It's so I'm 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 so happy that a lot of these conversations are in Persian so that nobody else can understand. But when Iranians come together and talk about the Aryan race, I'm like, oh my God, please, please, please stop. <laughs> Especially in the West, just the moment you bring up Aryan, that just that just gets real dark real fast yeah yeah you just mentioned the name i'm like oh my god just just where yeah Yeah, and i and i i I do know some people who are here and will identify as Aryans and think that's gonna work for them and one i mean you sound terrible and two like no one like no matter how much you identify with whiteness like no one sees you that way here like it's mm-hmm. not gonna work no matter how hard you try i'm sorry yeah. you're and, still gonna be stopped in the airport yeah no matter what you say it's not gonna change the fact <laughs> including like very visibly brown people but i think mm-hmm. there's just like something where people don't it's like like you said about how when you immigrate it takes a second to like recognize what american racism is sometimes it takes people a second to like understand how they're going to be perceived in a new system Mm-hmm. Um, but meanwhile, they sound terrible. <laughs> yeah, I I feel so honored to be on the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I was thinking of um of a special gift for your listeners. Um, so I was thinking of giving away uh, codes to the audiobook um, at random to people who sign up for my newsletter. Um, maybe for the first week after this episode airs um so find me at um hamurbaika.com and go to the bottom of the page and sign sign up for my newsletter and i'll be giving away codes to the audiobook fancy get on it y'all yeah um (laughs) of course all these links will be included on our website thequeerarabs.com where you can reach us you can reach us directly via email at thequeerarabs at gmail.com. We also have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Am I missing one? Did we add any while I was out? No, we're not. We're still not on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but we are on Spotify now. Again, thank you, Hamor, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Thank you.